Welcome to KCADV Certification Series. You are listening to Module 4.1. For future attachments and downloads, you can go to certification.kcadv.org forward slash Moodle. Thank you so much for tuning back into KCADV's Module 4. This is titled Children's, Teens, and Parenting, Working with Families Experiencing Domestic Violence. And I am back here with Christy Adams. And in the first section, we sort of talked about broader strokes, sort of overview of of littles and kids and youth, developmental stages, um, how trauma can kind of throw a kink a little bit into that, but also things that we need to be aware of and also how we work with parents and, and sometimes the difficulties of parents trying to protect their, you know, kids in the myriad of these life issues of violence and trauma. So, but now we're going to talk a little more specifically about kids that we're working with in our programming and things that we can do to support things to be aware of as we're doing really good advocacy. So... Here we are. I'm going to mostly talk about domestic violence shelter, but certainly there's a lot of folks that do non-residential work with our children. And so, so what is it that we really need to begin to just sort of, what's our first steps of doing good advocacy work as kids are, are um, coming into our, our domestic violence programs? I think as we think about kids who are coming into the program, um, it'd be a good time to talk about that circle of security to keep that in mind. It's a great thing for advocates to have in mind. And it's also a great thing to talk to parents about because it kind of shows them where they play a part in their kids' lives in a different way. So what the circle of security is, if you can imagine a circle at one point, there is that secure base. And we talked about that secure base earlier with the developmental stages of kids need that place to be pushed out from. Go explore, go try new things, go grow. And in all actuality, while the circle of security is rooted in children's work, I think it is, it transcends that. And we as adults need that. We always need that person encouraging us and being a support to us. So you send them out. If you think about the two-year-old, you know, they're learning to be more mobile and walking and, you know, they may eat dirt or pick flowers or whatever, but we want them to go out. The teens driving, dating, jobs, all of that. But then what they need to close that circle at the other end is that safe haven to come back to. So if the little child falls when they're walking and they cry Who's going to say, it's okay, and they're going to hug them and check on them. But then what do we do? We want to send them back out again to try it again. For that teenager who maybe they get in a wreck when they're driving, we're going to welcome them back in and process those feelings. How are you feeling? We're going to, there might be some accountability there if it's their fault, you know, what comes about that. But we're not going to say, don't ever drive again. We want to send them back out. So that the person who is that safe haven needs to be able to organize feelings, comfort them, nurture them, and then send them, be that secure base, send them back out again. And we can do that as advocates. We can do that as parents, as advocates. That's what we want for our our clients or participants, even our adults. We want them to go back out. We don't want them in shelter forever. We love them all, but we want them to go back out into the world. But we also want them to know if something happens in whatever journey they take, if something doesn't work, we're here, we're still here for them. 
And so to keep that in mind, first and foremost, I think is a guidepost from where we act from. I think that that can always be a difficult thing. Like what you just said was beautiful and simplistic. And what I liked about it is it's a takeaway of this is where we need to kind of be with our kids, right? They're all a different, we've, we've studied the developmental <laughs> stages, right? We know what sort of age appropriate for kids to be able to do. We want them to kind of push the boundary a little bit, right? We want them to sort of explore, but when they misstep or they, you know, whatever, I don't want to, I started to say fail and fail is the wrong word, right? Cause this is what they should be doing, right? They're learning and growing mistakes, mistakes and they're coming back and they're doing that. But what I sometimes find in a community setting is people have different expectations about how much risk, right? And so, you know, you might have this advocate thinks it's quite okay that these kids are all coming in with skin knees <laughs> because they've been riding their bike or they climbed a tree or they got outdoors and everybody else is like, we got too many skin knees going on in this house, right? We got to be bubbling these kids up a little bit. Or, you know, I grew up in the, uh, my grandmother used to say, you're going to eat a peck of dirt before you die. Like I was very, you got outside in nature, like you got outdoors. And then you have other advocates and or moms that are a little more fearful of, of that, you know? So I'm curious, Christy, if you have any ideas on how you begin to negotiate that amongst advocates, but also mom's the mom, right? And so we have to respect mom's, you know, position on this, but we also know we might have moms that are hypervigilant a little bit, if that's a correct term, of I got to keep my kids safe. I might have an open CPS case going on here. I, my goal has been to keep this child safe in the midst of all of this violence and trauma that's been going on in my home. And so I'm the mom who's, as we said in the previous podcast, I'm keeping my kid in the in the car seat because I don't want this kid to get hurt or I need to pick up and go. And so do you have any suggestions on how you begin to work with moms and each other to negotiate a, not everybody's going to be the same, but at least a consistency and a respect amongst each other of this is this is what we all agree to as to appropriate exploration? Yeah, and I think you start with that circle of security and then I've always worked from that piece, and granted, this is way more relevant to shelter than um, a non-residential population, but I think women who take their kids to shelter are some of the bravest individuals I've ever met. They walk through those doors and, you know... I don't know the size of every shelter in Kentucky, but, you know, let's say that the shelter has a capacity of 38 adults and the st they have 25 staff. Well, when she walks through that door, there are 37 other people who think they know how to better parent. And it's so much easier to focus on somebody else than ourselves. And then you have these 25 other people who are telling her how to parent if she's not meeting kind of the guidelines that shelter sets. And so where does that leave you? I mean, I remember being pregnant and having a mom and a mother-in-law and they were always in my ear. You should do this. You should do that. And you begin to question yourself. So imagine taking, you're already, you're tired, you're emotionally drained. You've left to protect these kids, to protect yourself. And you go through these doors of a place that you feel is going to keep you and your kids safe, but then you have this going on. And so we want to make sure that there's a dynamic where we do put mom first. She is mom. She's the boss. And I've told kids that before. I've said, your mom is my boss when it comes to you. That it is important to, you know, learn all of the things we talked about in that first podcast, developmental stages and have all of this in our mind. But how do we start with mom first? And with the goal of supporting her through this journey. 
and, and open communication can be important. And some of it does place a little bit more work on us as staff. We need to do that children's history. We need to have the conversation with mom, maybe not the first day, because your know, moms come into shelter and they're tired. And what I love about how women feel about shelter is also the one thing that drives us crazy. So in that first two weeks when kids are running around like it's the Indianapolis 500 and they're everywhere and mom is not anywhere in sight, sometimes that means she feels safe enough to work on herself and she feels that her kids are safe. Now, obviously, we have to find that balance because we can't just have kids everywhere without a parent. And there are liabilities and risk. You know, I know shelters that say, you know, you have to be your child has to be next to you 24 hours a day. But we also have to be able to balance expectations of parenting, because if we were not in a shelter, people have doors to walk behind, shut, breathe and come back out. In no home is a parent with their child 24 hours a day with them attached. So how do we balance that and have that realistic discussion of while you're with us, we want to follow your lead as mom and support you. And how do we make that fit into here's things that we need, though. We cannot have kids unattended in the kitchen. We can't have kids on the playground without a parent visually and can see them. And how does it become a natural conversation? And that is way easier said than done because of where mom is, where kids are, and what advocates need to accomplish. But how do we start that? Just in just saying, let's do this together. I think that's something that's missed so much. And I don't think it's missed intentionally. No, I think, shelters you know, are busy. Shelters are busy. And, you know, this is the, you know, 200th family that you've brought in and worked. <laughs> and we just sort of presume that everybody knows the rules and the structure and the whys, mm-hmm. you know, our director at our program often kind of gets on us because we don't share the why. And so sometimes when we're working with moms and kids and we kind of go, well, you can't go in the kitchen if that's the rule or you can't do this or, you know, whatever it is, or the guidance, we don't have rules. Christy. No, <laughs> rules. No, we don't. They're almost like, Super what easy. are they um, from Pirates of the Caribbean? They're just yeah, merely guidelines. More guidelines, <laughs> suggestions. But but we often don't give the why. And so if we can, as we're working with mom in a partnership, and I love that you said, you know, she's sort of the boss, right? Mm-hmm. She's the boss. Then, then we can, though, say in the community of our program, these are things that we do. And then this is the why that we do them. And then always allow sort of some wiggle room. Sometimes there's miscommunication communication in there, or I thought it was just my kid that couldn't do this, or I just, you know, whatever that is. But I think that can go a long way in a positive relationship throughout the shelter stay. And something else that you mentioned a second ago, you were talking about, you know, that first couple of weeks, right? Mom could be exhausted, most likely is, trying to figure this uh, new place out herself, breathing a little bit easier, but might be feeling safer to express her feelings. So it can be, you know, a you know, some anger and crying and maybe lots of things going on. What does that first two weeks look like for the kids? I know when you and I talked the other day, you said, always hold dear your impression of children and keep that grounding you throughout the rest because you're going to deal with lots of different personalities. So you want to hold true your love of of kids and kind of hold that dear. But what are some things that we can we can do as advocates in that first couple of weeks to help settle the family and particularly focused on the on the kids? I think we just go back to the trauma-informed training that we get throughout um, all the KCADV modules and additional trainings is 
you know, being trauma informed can be really good customer service. And I also think it encourages us to answer those why questions. So if we take a step back and we think about our shelters, or I think about even my own program, we have cameras for safety and our doors lock for security. And we know this. But do we ever stop and think what people think about that? So, for example, in my own program, we had a person who she was terrified because she had heard we had all these cameras and she thought we had cameras in her apartment. And I'm like, oh, no, they're just on the the parking lot and the doors to our offices. We would not have them in your apartment and violate your privacy. But we never said that. So all she kept hearing were all these cameras. We keep a watch on you. We want you to feel safe. So take again, it takes a little bit more time in the beginning, but how do we walk somebody even through our own programs? So we bring them in and, you know, it doesn't have to be that first time, you know, they're doing intake and say, oh, let's pause and do this. But within the first couple of days say, you know, we're welcoming you. Let's, let's do a tour of where you are and show them, you know, there's cameras that will help us feel safe. You know, our front door, you have to buzz into, because we want to know who comes in the door. Do we show them different doors? Do we show them where they're allowed to play and put it in a more positive piece than there's the kitchen, you can't go there. There's this, you can't do this. But how do we take that intentional step of introducing them to what is their home for however long it may be? You know, you don't do that with when you're buying a home or an apartment without somebody giving you kind of that tour of everything, because it feels really disempowering if you don't know where something is. Or what if your child wants food and you don't know where they keep snacks and shelter yet? So how do we do this intentionality of their environment? We may not have control over their thinking or even if they want to leave or how they even feel about being there. But did we do everything in our power and boundary to make them feel welcome. I think it's something that we miss probably quite a bit. I I think, again, there's great intention Mm -hmm. on doing a tour for the the adult, right? I don't know that there's an intentional tour and a welcoming and an orientation of the kids. I think there is as, oh, we're all going to go do, you know, an activity outside. So this is how that goes. But it kind of happens as it naturally occurs. It's not kind of an overview piece. And I and I think it's one of the, I, I think we miss it. And, and the other thing that you talked a little bit about well, you talked actually quite a bit about it, is how we show up for the kids. And I think there's a real concern, and I would assume that people that are listening to this podcast might be newer in the in the work. And so we think, well, I didn't go to school for this. I'm really not educated in children development and youth advocacy. And I kind of came in more to work with the adult survivor of intimate partner violence. So I don't know a lot about those kids. Thank goodness there is a youth advocate over here. Thank goodness. And all questions and all activity is going to defer this direction. But we often sometimes complicate what kids need. And so talking to them, explaining the why, being warm, being loving, being caring goes, I don't know, Christy, 90% of good advocacy and not just pushing away and going, this is for the youth advocate and this is not for me, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, I've worked with programs who don't have children's advocates and they just have a family advocate. And I've worked with programs who have an adult advocate and a youth advocate. And there's pros and cons, I think, to both. But I think what we have to remember is we want to do this as a family unit and family units are not completely separated. 
I work with the Ascend Network, which is part of the Aspen Institute. That was a good segue, wasn't it? I didn't even mean that to happen, but that was a good segue for you. Two Gen. Two Gen work. Go. Because Two Gen work is one of those terms that is being thrown out there when, you know, trauma-informed care became a thing and mindfulness and ACEs. Two Gen work was also something people wanted to be a part of. And because kids and adults are both in it, we have a lot of people that say, oh, we do two gen work because we do kids and we do adults. But what two gen work actually is, is how do those intersect to complement the family? So it doesn't mean, yes, we do two gen work because we're doing arts and crafts with the kids and we have mom learning financial education. But it means how are we working with them as a whole? Kids can still do arts and crafts. Moms can still do financial education. But what is it about that financial education that's going to serve that child? Or with kids learning what they're learning in arts and crafts, what does that bring to the family? It might be that they are actively engaged or learning, and that's something we want kids to have. But how do they cross? How do we support each other? So they can't be divided out in in that work. Because again, we're only going to be part of this family unit for a brief time, hopefully. They've got to go on and function together to grow, nurture, and survive. And so that piece of, oh, let's push it to a youth advocate or that's a mom thing. How do we work in conjunction and bring those two parties together? Because more than likely, mom has been mom in the fact that she dresses her kids and feeds her kids and puts them to bed and does those things. But in some domestic violence cases, she's not been been allowed to be that parent. She can't have that parent authority because that's given her too much control in the household. So sometimes kids may come into shelter and not even respect their mom because they've not had to listen to her. And again, kids, when they're learning and learning about manipulation and who they listen to, they've learned that she can't punish me because she might get in trouble. And we, um, it's almost our jobs to kind of bring that family back together. So one of the things could be, you know, when they're in shelter for a week, let's sit down, tell me about your family, family guidelines. Since we don't like the word rules, but you know, what, what do you value in your family? You know, do you all have a bedtime? Um, I think that's one of the most interesting pieces of shelter because you could have families in the same room and you have a mom who my kids go to bed at eight o'clock and they get up at six o'clock and they do that really well. And she may be in a room with mom who their kids go to bed at 11 or 12 and they're not sleeping through the night, but just kids vary. Some kids don't need that much sleep, but then some kids, depending on when the trauma was in their home, their bodies have learned not to sleep. And then you have these two competing going on in one room. And what does that do to a dynamic? So how do we show up, be present for that family and encourage where we can? And that kind of goes to the honoring of the consistency, right? Mm -hmm. You and I again talked about this prior to today's um, conversation. And I said, this comes up quite a bit. So I'm glad you brought that up. But we can honor the consistency and the, the, the rhythm of the family. But we can also say, but the shelter program sort of follows this way. This is when, just to use our program as an example, this is when co-op happens. This is when after school stuff happens. This is when dinner happens. This is when homework group happens, like whatever those things are. And we need to be consistent with that. And back like what we were talking about earlier, there can be a lot of chaos and, and things that are take place in shelter, but trying to maintain the schedule 
and the flow of the house is really important. So to do mm -hmm. dinner at four o'clock and then do dinner at seven o'clock and, oh, we did co-op normally at 10, but we're going to move it to another day and we're going to do it at three o'clock. That can sort of throw that off, but still pay honor to the rhythm of the family as you're getting the history with the moms to kind of go, so what does your all's bedtime routine look like? And what is what do these things look like? They can both happen at the same time. I sometimes see programs or advocates feel that they need to completely, you know, create a schedule for every family to be exactly the same. Oh my goodness. Right? <laughs> or, or a free-for-all. Like just, you know, we are here for holding a space for these, you know, 20 different families to all kind of flow and do at the same time. And that's, you know, unsettling. So there's there's a there's a middle ground there, I think, of how the two the two pieces can occur. Do you and, agree? Yes. And going back to how kids work, you know, the, again, you know, people take different models and different models come into the learning community and education. Um, in the last few years in early child care, it's been conscious discipline, which is a way of looking at things, which I really love. I think one of the best kind of examples that I've heard somebody use is how do you in taking into consideration everybody. So let's say we have two kids, a five-year-old and two-year-old standing on the table. And the five-year-old, being the five-year-old, just, you know, takes that jump off like Superman. And he can do that. And he, you know, lands on his feet and he's good. And everybody's like, yay. And then what's going to happen next? Two-year-old. That two-year-old's going to follow and they're not going to be as successful. They don't have the strength in their legs yet, so they might fall. And then they're going to cry. And then what we are, what normally would happen is people would look at the five-year-old and say, well, why did you jump? Yeah. What were you thinking? What were you thinking? They're going to follow you. But where do we just hold that two, you know, we can't yell at the two-year-old for jumping because that would be a natural thing they want to do, but not to place the blame on that five-year-old. You know, where do we bring in just normal rhythms and acknowledgement. Another piece of conscious discipline that I really like are, and now the term has gone out of my head. It's like a routine, but that's not the word they use. But how do you establish these comfort patterns for children? You know, you see a lot of teachers in schools now who have developed individual handshakes and they come into the room every morning and everybody has their unique handshake, but it's the same process. So that's kind of a routine that helps. How do we bring those pieces into shelter? It's unique, but consistent. Yeah, as well. Because again, we're not asking everybody to conform to one thing, and but we're not, as you said, that free for all. But we can't go anywhere as humans and expect our schedule to be everybody else's. But what we can do is how do we help mold, teach, and connect? Can I go back a little bit? So to the two-generational model, the two-gen that you're talking about. So that's generational for, I had to do my homework. So for those folks that, that need to check that out. And again, it's with Ascend, with the Aspen Institute. So as we said earlier, it is our responsibility as advocates to continue to grow and learn in this work. So check it out. Can you give me an example with, you said, you know, sometimes you have the mom over here that's doing a financial literacy class. You got the kids who's doing the art and craft class. And, and a typical thing is there's no communication between those two things. One is a very isolated standalone event. The other is a very isolated standalone event. What would it look like for advocates to begin to say what we're learning over here needs to reflect and um, complement what's happening over here. I don't know that I completely get how the arts and craft class and the financial literacy class is coming back into what's best for the family. 
in that piece, it may just be keeping kids occupied so mom can get this information. But you can also set up educational pieces to support what you just said. So, for example, if mom's doing a financial education class, why not do something around finances for kids? Now, it does not have to be that exact level. It might start with, in our program, we actually have a financial class for two to five-year-olds. It's the only one I'm allowed to teach, where we're just teaching them about coins. And so we have dice that have pictures of coins on them, and we'll let them roll the dice. And if a dime comes up, they have to jump 10 times. But how are we just doing this brief introduction so that the topics are similar and they could have some sort of conversation? That's really um, If you're doing okay. forms of abuse with mom, you could do bullying with kids or something as simple as hands are for helping. But how do you have the concepts similar enough that they could continue that dialogue at home if they had to? Um, but to even show some commonality, you know, even if you, you talk about kids asking questions and sometimes we kind of give them more then they really are looking for. I always joke, I think about parents and kids who ask where babies come from. And you have these parents who prep for this really long discussion and they do that. And the kid's looking at them with these eyes like, what are you talking about? When really saying from mommy's tummy and they're good. So you kind of start with where they need to be. And you can always work into that speech if they press on, like, how did it get there? But maybe that's all they needed then. So how do you take those topics where moms can say, you know, we learned about money tonight. And then you, that little one's like, oh, I learned about coins. You know, I know that a dime, I jumped 10 times. Yeah. Um, how do you interconnect those? I love that. You know, so much of the time, and again, I, I, I apologize to those folks that are listening in that are in non-residential work. Although I would imagine if you're doing housing and advocacy and support groups, of non-residentially. And a lot of times we might have a kids group going on at the same time as a non-residential adult group. But my stories, I think, tend to fall into shelter life. It's just so available to well, have that. Yeah. And non-residential, you do do a lot of work around safety because they are at more at risk because you could be doing a topic that they turn around and go home back to the perpetrator and you have to be careful what kids will say. Yes. Again, especially those two to four-year-olds because they love to tell everything. They jibber-jabber. They jibber-jabber, but they're so proud. You know, I, one of the things you talk about what can advocates do, um, I always talk about the importance of kids who are starting school because it is a requirement for even some in Head Start, but kindergarten and first grade, that kids be able to know their address. So what happens if you have a kid in shelter, and we'll go, we'll go back to shelter for this example, and they go into kindergarten and the teacher starts teaching them their address from the, their enrollment card and maybe shelters and address is on there. They're learning that address. And then the child goes on visitation and says to dad, you know, we live at 403 Reg Smith Circle. And they're not doing that to harm anybody. They are so proud they know that, but it can put mom in harm's way. So as advocates, we need to know kind of what happens not only in children's development, but even with kind of their education. So we can say to mom, you know, your child's going into kindergarten and they're going to have to know their address do you want to teach them at this? Is it safe for them to learn this address where they are? Or should we, are you comfortable enough to talk to the school to say, we need to teach this address? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much to think about, right? And I think it's one of those things when in the in the module, again, that we were talking about before of just advocacy and, and vicarious trauma and, and all those pieces is 
always as you're as you're building these programs and building the support group and building these conversations, bounce these same ideas off certainly a mom, but each other. It's really difficult as an advocate to think of all the the ripple and the ramifications of certain things. And so I always invite new folks into this work to just sort of, you know, plan through and bounce through either your senior staff or your your fellow advocates because things I wouldn't have even have thought about that of teaching kids when you're talking about doing safety planning and stuff with kids I wouldn't have even have thought about that and then going to school and then I would if they were living with I just wouldn't have thought about it in the school setting yeah there's a lot that comes up and it's right we have a lot of unintended consequences that can come from group. You know, I never thought about using glitter with a group of boys before. And then after my first group of glitter with boys did not do that again, because it went everywhere. But yeah. And again, we learn from what we've done. One of the things though, that I'm going to talk about shortly, kind of almost lays out a roadmap to things we should do or be aware of. It's called the SAS model. But uh, just a real quick learning story because part of the SAS and part of being trauma-informed, you know, one of those core elements is safety. And so we should always be doing safety planning with not only our moms, but our kids. And that could look different. They may need a safety plan for shelter and they may need a safety plan while on visitation and safety plan for when they leave. But early on, I was doing safety planning with kids and it is very learned it's very important that mom be aware of her kid's safety plan because there could be things that kids have thought of, but in their minds is a lot different. So I was safety planning with these two little boys and they had this perfect plan. If mom and it was their dad were fighting and it got pretty intense, they had this money saved and they were going to call a cab and take a cab to grandma's house where they would be safe. I mean, they laid it out like pros and knew this. So by chance we mentioned it to mom and because there's nothing scarier after a traumatic incident than not knowing where your child might be. But we're going through the plan, and this is where the money is, and this is this. And, and she's like, okay. You do know Grandma lives in Florida, right? And here we are in Shelbyville, Kentucky. A key factor. That, that would have been pretty important because I'm pretty sure the coins they had hidden were not going to cover a cab to Florida. And that could have set them up for failure. And so how do we make sure we kind of know what's relevant? But safety should always be at the forefront of anything we do. That even goes back to when they come into shelter, talking about what makes it safe in shelter. The doors, the cameras, because they're already going to be grieving a whole lot. You know, they've left their home. They may have left their favorite door, the Explorer Comforter. They may have lost their hiding place where they felt safe. Their toys are there. They may have to change schools. There's a lot that's going to be going on with them. And so they're going to grieve in different ways. You know, it's, they may have not lost a parent, but they've lost so much of what they are familiar with that they will miss it. And, and that has impact. And we can't ever minimize that. Where in our world, you know, you're safe now. We'll find another door. The Explorer Comforter seems really rational, but not in their their minds. And that's that, that piece, too, when we said, you know, 
certainly if you've got somebody who's sort of acute, you know, in acting, you know, a place that's causing concern, but that first couple of weeks while kids are coming in and getting adjusted, so many feelings and so many emotions going on. So just the change up of coming to shelter in itself is, is stressful. And so, so we probably need to not make too many strong decisions as to what's going on with this kid until we can kind of just get them stable, right? right? Love them, care them, care for them, you know, play with them, acknowledge them, get them feeling safe, do the orientation and welcome. Like those are important pieces just again, to build some comfort and grounding. I would think. And watch because if you have a playroom, Uh, And a lot of shelters do and know that they are incredibly chaotic and crazy. And but what if you have this child in shelter who every time he goes to the playroom, he's playing with this like green truck every single time. And you notice that what happens when that green truck's not there? And so how do you, you know, take a scan of your own space, knowing kind of what kids, you know, I know that when Johnny goes in, he likes this green truck. Do we see the green track? The uh, just kind of those things to be aware that's going to be helpful to kids because again their brains think so much differently than ours do. They don't always get credit. You know, if we think about how we describe kids, it's like mom came with this little person, but the little person has their own growth development. They're pretty powerful again because they're not only living that cycle of violence with mom, they're watching it, and sometimes they can even be a predictor. They just can see and know when it's coming. They're just little powerful human beings that completely different. And one of the aspects, though, that I would put out to advocates, I think it's always very interesting. If we ask an adult a question, if I said, Diane, you know, what's your favorite color today? And you like, I'd rather not say. We're pretty respectful of that as advocates. It's your right not to talk or you might not feel safe. But if we ask kids questions and they don't answer us, it's almost like they've broken a law. Like I'm an adult. I ask you a question. We have to respect their silence as much as we would respect adults. We do have sometimes two different expectations. And then you're just like, yeah, it's that really different. But I think this is a great place to kind of talk about the SAS model that I actually learned about it when doing the training to continue doing the trainings for KCADV. So from the National Center on Domestic Violence, Trauma and Mental Health. But I think it kind of puts a really nice roadmap out there. And I just like the name SAS. So it's kind of fun to say. Uh, but that's sassy. It's sassy. <laughs> and you can't get wrong. I mean, three of the letters are the same, but we don't want to mix the order up because the order actually makes sense as well. So that first S is for restoring safety. So when kids come into our shelter, we want to help them feel safe. And we've talked about that, you know, giving the tours, being present, because that restoring safety is not just a physical safety. It is a psychological safety, too. How do we help them think about what makes them feel safe? How do we create safety plans? Again, what does the facility look like? How predictable is it? How do we create structure? And then talking to the parent about what their kids need. And then how do we create that safe place to talk and for kids? If we have children's advocates in shelter, usually they will take that and they have that play space. If we have Family advocates who serve both, do they have time carved out just for the kids to talk about how they're feeling? When we're doing group, do we give permission to kind of not be present if they want? For example, kids, you know, if we're doing a group and we're talking about anger, which can be very scary to kids because one, they're either angry 
or they're terrified of anger because they think they know what it is. They think they've seen it in the violence, but they may just drift off and to give them permission and say, okay, if you don't want to participate in our group, you can go sit on the outer banks. I'll keep an eye on you and you can do what you need to do. Giving them some lead way and some permission. Kids will take things where they need it to go. And just because you gave them permission and they're sitting on the outside of the group, they're still listening. So the first S is how do we establish just safety for them? And then the A is attachment and regaining trust in their relationships. So and that's something that you've alluded to and we've talked about is how do we strengthen that parent-child bond while we have them? Because there are some kids who they're going to be pretty daggone mad at their mom and because they don't understand. So for kids, they almost have this view of, well, why didn't she leave? Why did she take it? And not from that kind of judgmental piece that, some of society may have, but more of that piece of from their world, mom tells me what to do. She tells me what I can eat and drink and if I can go to my friend's house. So she's an adult. Why can't she just tell this person what to do? But so how do we bring them together and get that back on track? And how do we reestablish, you know, that connection if, if it has been disrupted? You know, they may want to go back. Sometimes kids will will side with the perpetrator and not because they don't have a love for mom because they do, but it's almost that self-preservation. They've seen where that power is. Right. They either so. want, their, they, they might want their old life back. Yeah. Right. Or as you said, sometimes we have to align for safety. Yeah. So how do we work with that family unit? So again, it's almost like a roadmap. They come through our doors. Number one, help them feel safe establish safety, both physically and psychologically. And then how do we work on that family unit? Because they are. Mom didn't come there by herself if they're with them. Kids didn't walk in by themselves. They are a unit, each separate, but still part of that unit. Yeah. We need to respect that. Yes. That's the S and the A. Then you get into two more S's. So that second S is for self-regulation. How do we teach kids to self-regulate. And that can be a big help to mom. When kids are stressed or scared, what can we teach them? I don't think it was any kind of mistake when trauma-informed, again, became a mainstream term because I I don't think it was something that was just invented. I, I work with many mentors who I think have practiced that way for many, many years, but we gave it a mainstream term. Mindfulness was always also came about. We started seeing more about being mindful and mindful practices. And not only because, again, as part of trauma-informed care, there is that intentionality of practicing self-care better, but how do we teach people to kind of regulate themselves? So teaching kids deep breathing techniques, teaching kids how to ground different exercises they can do. I think one of the best things I've seen with children that DV shelters can have on hand and that are relatively inexpensive are pinwheels. Because what you can do is you can teach kids how to hold the pinwheel and blow into it. And if you've ever seen a kid who's never used a pinwheel, it's kind of like, and you know, you don't see much happen. But if you can teach them to do it correctly, then there's almost a feedback that they've done something. So it's that cause and effect. I've done something. But it also teaches them how to control their breathing. You know, if we don't blow hard enough, the pinwheel won't turn. If we blow too hard, the pinwheel may go a little crazy. And that's something really cheap and easy that can be on hand to give kids. There's some other techniques people have used, you know, teaching kids how to 
pick imaginary petals and do, I've not met many kids who like those imaginary petals. Um, I can only imagine at Greenhouse 17 when you have a yard, a whole garden full of flowers, you may not want to teach kids yeah, to pick petals. That. Yeah, that would uh, be the end. Because that would be so much fun. Because again, we do have to think about when we offer children or teach children things, what may come about. Um, again, learn from experience. When I first started teaching kids safety planning in shelter, you know, one of them was how to call 911. Yeah, in the next couple of weeks, we saw lots of police officers because kids were practicing and they were coming. So we had to buy toy phones for shelter and to mock going through that. I like to, would this fit in here? I like the um, example you gave when we were talking about the feet. It was the mm -hmm. footprint. Oh, yeah. And it was sort of dealing. Can you explain that one? Yeah. And the piece about that is we also, and the pinwheels can work the same way, is we want to be able to give them things that they can take with them and kind of move to their new home or back to their old home. But how do we teach practices that we've seen in play, but that they can use at home. So one with kids who are really, if you want to talk about anger and set boundaries, is you can have kids trace their feet on a piece of paper with permission. We never want to do body tracings without permission. Um, and let them decorate the feet any way they want. But those are going to be their angry feet. And so you can place them around the room. And so when they're angry, instead of acting up in a group or a space, you can say, can you go stomp it out for a little bit? And we know that anger is about getting that physical piece out before they can process. So letting them go stomp. I had an ingenious kid one time. He asked for cotton balls for his feet. You know? And I'm like, cotton balls? And he's like, I have a lot of stomping. <laughs> so he was thinking. He was prepping. Um, but those feet, while the practice can be taught and done while in shelter, it's also something we can teach mom to take with her and serve a purpose. So just to review, I always like to go back. So we have, we've established that sense of safety. We're working on that attachment and strengthening that bond. And then how we self-regulate when we're in these heightened emotions. And then that last sense or the last S is kind of self-esteem and self-agency. You know, how do they feel about themselves? And that's one thing that shelter can do. You know, how are how are we talking to kids about what do they like about themselves or what are some things that they can do? I always used to joke, again, going back to the chaotic playroom, you know, kids spend a lot of time hearing the word, no, <laughs> don't do that. No, you can't. If we flip how we talk to them, we get different results. So if you've ever had a child in a playroom where toys are just everywhere and we say, you need to clean this up. We're not doing anything else until this is cleaned up. Kids might look at you like, yeah, right. But how different would it be if we took, broke it down and said, okay, Zachary, can you show me where all the trucks go? Where did they go? And he will be so happy because we don't ask kids for their help too terribly much to pick up all the trucks and make it a game and put it in there and show me where the trucks go. And then you can say, you know, Diane, can you show me where all the games go? And make it fun for them, but asking them something and letting them be in that place of power of telling us, even though we know. I think sometimes celebrating small successes, right? Absolutely. I think is so important to a person's self-esteem and autonomy. And I, and I, I think that's true even of adults, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, who are experiencing trauma. Can we, are we, can we ask as part of the program, as part of the process for 
for feedback, but, but also the ability to start and finish and complete something that they can feel really proud of, Mm -hmm. you know, and if we can make those things, uh, an opportunity throughout their stay in program, I see lots of work on that with adults, you know, and things sometimes that I think are kind of, I don't know, like they'll make a craft or they'll draw something or we have a sewing room in ours, they'll sew something. And I'm always startled by how proud of showing, you know, everybody their work of something that they've done or they baked a birthday cake for the kid and showing this, you know, to people. And I would think kids would just, I don't know, it just boost their sense of self to have these opportunities too. In the program where I currently work, we even, we still use the word goals and we want people to have goals. The goals can be pretty lofty. You know, we want the goal to go to college or to graduate with a degree or buy a house that we always don't take time to celebrate those small pieces. So even when we do support or care plans now, we break them into milestones and goals to show them there are things that you did to along the way to get to this bigger piece, but we just don't go from A to Z without pieces in between. So how do we set them up for success, not only through their actions, but our words and our encouragement? So can you just, because I know we're going to be closing up pretty mm-hmm. soon with, with um, this conversation, but can you rename the, the four steps of the SAS yes. for us one more time? Safety and security is the first S. Attachment, which is strengthening that bond. The third or the second S, third letter, is that self-regulation and then self-esteem, how they feel about themselves and self-agency, self-efficacy. How, how do they affect others? Do we have opportunities for them to assist others in shelter? Maybe, you know, it might be they dry dishes one night, but do they see they can do something? There are just so many other dynamics. I know we are... I know. Short on, you know, short on time. You could talk about kids for like years and their difference. But I would say that that number one piece, though, is that safety plan with kids. Do they have people they can feel safe in talking to? Do they know their, their the, the basic feelings? Do they have a safe place? Not, not always physically, but can they in their mind think of a place that makes them feel safe? And then how do they reconnect with their mom? Or dad, right, whomever right. it might be. So work work with mom and child as you're putting together that safety plan, mm-hmm. getting their history, mm-hmm. find out about these kids. I love the word intentional curiosity. Get in, you know, get in and dig in with the yeah. kids and see what kind of makes them makes them tick and build these, you know, trusting spaces and relationships. Let them make the map. You kind of are that organizational gatherer. You know, I work from a place with my own staff or with advocates. Our job is not to fix things or tell people what to do in any way, shape, or form. Our job is to hold all of the information and say, how do we draw this roadmap for you? What do you want your map to look like? And if we're going to go down this road and it doesn't work, we need to be prepared with options for the next road. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm just going to add this, but we really don't have time to talk to it. But as much as we were talking about the difficulty of coming into shelter and leaving our homes, perhaps, mm-hmm. or if you're non-residential, you've had to make changes probably for safety, but also the leaving of shelter. So now kids have been with us for four, five, six months, and now we're excited. We've got a new house or an apartment or new place to go, or and there's a lot of grief sometimes of leaving that situation. So I just am putting a, a plug in there for advocates to be 
be thoughtful of that process that as in, well. That intentionality of the next yes, step. And I, hard. I know one of the things we did not get to talk to you, I know um, it's in notes and the PowerPoint um, that KCADV will have is what promotes the healing and resilience in kids. We didn't even get to all of that, but I would review that section because that kind of really goes to also that next step. Because again, how are we preparing you after you leave our doors? That's right. We just have them for a short snippet of time. Short snippet of time. So this is just a transition. So we need to do that. So, and I think that probably was a hint that Christy was giving for your exam. If you're taking the exam. If you're taking your exam. for that as well. That SAS, that circle of security and those resiliency factors. And, you know, they all intertwine. Yeah. But again, you know, show the... You don't even have to know anything on kids to show up and be present with them. Right. We don't talk enough about what's, what's, love. What's your our, name? Yes, <laughs> yes. I hear your name. In, in closing it out, I think as one thing we do as adults, if you think about how we walk down a hallway and I might say to you today and how you feeling today or how are you today? And I'll keep on walking. I didn't really expect a response. It's just kind of a norm we do. But how different does it feel if I say, Diane, you know, I really like the black sweater you're wearing today. In that moment, we know we're seen. Yes. Yeah. Christy, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. It is something that comes up all the time. And I really encourage advocates in our programs really to take a little bit of a leap and and really sort of dig into working with our our littles and and our older youth. Actually, that's a struggle and shelter as well. That's a whole different. We didn't even talk about technology and kids and teens. I know. know. We have to add a whole nother podcast section to this. But thank you so much. So we will leave you with that. This is Diane. And you've been listening to KCADV's Module 4. And we were talking with Christy Adams. So thank you so much.